our speaker now because she'll just come up as soon as worship is over. So some of you have met, but many of you don't know Stephanie Hunt. Stephanie is the LifeHouse director here at Salem Millennium, which is our recovery ministry, but she does amazing work. And Stephanie and I have gotten to know each other over this last year, and I will say that her heart is so strong that her strategic and, and um, programming mind is amazing, and that God is using her in ways already. She's been here since May, so less than a year, and I love working with Stephanie, and I got to hear her last night, and I'm excited about the word that she's bringing to us. So that will be Stephanie, who will be up after worship. Um, thanks, Jennifer, for your kind words. I came from Carbon University, where I worked for about 10 years, and I was really invested there. I had some wonderful friends, and I thought, okay, God, I know you're leading me to Salem Alliance, and I'm sure there are some wonderful people there, but I thought if you bring me a good friend, <laughs> and, and Jennifer has done that, and I love the friendship that God has birthed and is growing in our lives, so thanks for that. Um, a little bit about me. I have been married. For 26 years in January, my husband and I celebrated 26 years of marriage. Yeah. Um, I just want to say, marriage is hard. Um, if you would have told me 26 years ago it was going to be this hard, I would have been like, shut up, no way. But it's true, but it's also so good, and I guess it's the hard that makes it good sometimes, right? So 26 years of marriage, and we have raised three children. Our children are young adults. They are in their 20s, 20s. 23 and 26, and we are really proud of them. They're all still in the local area. And if you're doing the math, you might realize that, um, yes, I've been married 26 years, and my oldest son is 26. I realized last night that I have a similar story as Jane. Um, I, too, was a single teenage mom, and um, I love what God is doing in Jane's life, and I love what he redeems. And I have never regretted saying yes to Jesus. <laughs> I've never regretted that. I never will. So I want to talk a little bit this morning about the brain. And if you've been around me in the last six months or so, especially the last two months of LifePath, and for those of you that are here that are also part of LifePath, I'm sorry, this is going to be so similar. It's going to be familiar, but I can't quit talking about it. Um, but I'm intrigued right now with the brain and how God has created our brains. He has created our brains to heal and how he has just created our entire body. It's just amazing to me. So I'm a little bit of a nerd, and I just keep talking about it, so I'm excited. And what we have found in the last two decades of brain research is that science affirms what God's been telling us for a long time. And I don't know why that should surprise us, but sometimes it still does. We're like, wow, this is, this is true. God has these principles in Scripture. And now we have science to say, oh, by the way, this is, this is true stuff. And so that's why I get excited about it. Because I know that these things are true in Scripture, but I love it when science catches up. And that shouldn't be a surprise, because God's the author of both the Bible and science, right? So it's not a big surprise. But I've been reading about the brain. I don't, I don't claim to be an expert in it, but I love reading about it. And I love the ways that God has allowed our brains to heal when we apply the principles that He lays out for us. Not just the principles of Scriptures, but even who He is and His character. So in order to really go into my talk this morning, I'm going to give a quick lesson about the brain. It won't be really, really complex, but I hope it'll clear up some things for you about the brain. And I'm going to use a story. How many of you enjoy going to Silver Creek Falls? Some among friends, good. I do too. I love Silver Creek Falls. And when I go to Silver Creek Falls, I like to do the entire 10-fall hike. The 
three and a half, four hours. That's exactly my kids' response. We can do the entire thing. Into the Mother's Day, if the weather's nice, I play the Mother's Day card and ask my husband and my children to do the entire hike with me. It's like, go big or go home. Let's do this. So we go and we hike and it's enjoyable. But I'd like you to imagine for a minute that I'm at Silver Creek Falls and I'm by myself. And I'm hiking down that hill to go around the South Falls, which is probably my favorite one. And we're going to walk behind the falls and we're 200 feet of cascading water, gorgeous. And I keep walking slowly with my whole hike. And I like it when I get away from people a little bit. And all these trails and the smells and the sounds and the sights of nature are so rejuvenating for me. I love it. I feel like I grew up in the world. And I get fresh air in my lungs. It's a blessed thing. So imagine that as I'm walking, I'm away from people. And I make a turn. And as I look up, there's another bear on her hind feet. And she is growling. He's mad. And as I look around, I'm in between her and her baby cubs. What a place for me to be. And I'm a smart woman, and I like to think that sometimes I am. I will be very, very afraid. It's appropriate. That's a real threat. And here's what's going on in my brain at that moment. At that moment, this part of my brain, back here in the amygdala, that's the fire station of the brain, it's beginning to fire up. The fear sensors are firing, and it's trying to interpret, is this a real threat or not? Trust me, if I'm between the cub and the mama, it's a real threat. And so my brain, doing exactly what it's supposed to do, starts excreting stress hormones throughout my body. Cortisol and adrenaline and glucocorticoids, which are like a sugar, because all of those things are needed to prepare me for fight, flight, or freeze. That's what my brain is doing, it's preparing me. So my heart rate goes up, and my blood pressure goes up, my eyes begin to dilate a little bit, and the energy in my body goes towards my muscles, like my legs and my arms, so that I can fight or flight this bear, or maybe freeze, which is probably what I would do if this were a real story. I just be paralyzed with fear. Um, but that's what's happening in the body, and at the same time that that's happening, there are parts of my body that shut down temporarily because they're not needed, like I need to run away from bear. My immune system shuts down, my digestive system, my reproductive system, even the fat part of my brain here. This is the prefrontal cortex. Again, the name is not important, but this is where we process love and compassion and trust and reason. That shuts down temporarily. So all of these things are happening in my body and in my brain within seconds. That's how wondrous God has made us. It's happening like that. Now, let's say the ranger comes down bullets in the air, the bear runs away, the ranger gets me to the station, I'm safe, and over time, I'll begin to relax, my body will go back to normal, the brain, the fear center will stop firing, even though that was very traumatic, my digestive system will, will start to work again, reproductive system, immune system, the brain starts to process, I start to think what just happened, because only now can my brain actually process the reason of that and, and, and sequence that and do the problem solving. All of that goes back to normal. However, for some people that are living in a high state of constant fear because of physical threat, the body doesn't go back to normal. For example, my son, my oldest son, is an army veteran. He spent a year in Iraq, he spent a year in Afghanistan, and for the years that he was overseas, his fire station at his place was at alert almost all the time. That is high level. 
sometimes we can think things that we don't believe. Let me give you an example from my own life. As I mentioned before, I tend to be someone that gets a little bit anxious. Um, I tend to be someone that can slip into perfectionism a little bit. And um, before I became the director of Life Path, I went through one of the 12-week groups. And I was at home and I was working with the different groups that were being offered. And I was asking my family, you know, what group do you think I should, I should do? And I started listening to different groups. And I came to the group in control. And they're like, yes, that's the one. Wisdom. Never ask your children for an honest. <laughs> I'm just saying, they'll, they'll tell you. They, and they know it's well enough that they can do that. So I said, okay, maybe I have some control in my hands. I don't know. And I went to a group and I did 12 steps for living. And we began to work through the steps. And, and I, I start to hear from the Lord. And I start to walk him through. You know, I tend to be an anxious person. What's that about? And when I get anxious, I tend to try to control everybody. What's that about? And I'll never forget week six. At week six, I was doing my homework, I was reading a book, I was doing some journaling, and all of a sudden, God revealed to me my true belief. And it was this. He said, Stephanie, when you have a task to do, your belief about you is this. You don't really follow your own idea. I thought, well, that's not what I think. And, it was, and God just kept looking in my heart and said, very, very anxious. You think I'm asking you to do everything perfectly. You start controlling the people around you because you want to look good. And, and, and you, you basically, you basically walk out the belief that I'm really not interested in being part of and that I put that responsibility on you when it's really my responsibility. You take on so many things that are, that are, that are mine to, to carry and do you want my job, Stephanie? <laughs> and he said it lovingly, but it was like, Seriously, is this, is this what you want? Because it's killing you. It's killing you. It's not healthy. I can do better. When God revealed that belief, that, that was kind of a shock that I could see. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I was thinking that it came because, God, I know he wants to help me. Even in those moments, I could cry out to him like kind of this desperate plea. You know how you do when you're really nervous about stuff? I could cry out to him. But the true belief is that had to be abused, and that's what God wanted to do in my heart. For me, understanding this makes passages like Romans 12 come alive in ways that it never came alive before. We don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, here's how I used to hear that verse. I hear that verse as Stephanie, there's something I ask you to do that you can be good enough, but you're minding me. All right? We're talking you down. But get it removed. Here's how I hear that verse now. I hear Jesus inviting me into a process of healing. My entire being, my mind, he wants to renew my mind. He wants to gently and lovingly show me the beliefs and my perceptions of him that are off base so that my brain can be healed, my body can be healed, my emotions, my spirit. It's an invitation. Be transformed in your mind. Be transformed the renewing of your mind. The changing of your mind. Redeeming your entire being, Stephanie. That's my invitation. Now, one more piece of bad news before we get to the good news. The bad news about the way the brain functions when it's in fear is that we have inherited that. 
boy born with that. But that's what my daughter did all the way in. The seed was planted and it didn't take place for us. We didn't have our best interests in mind. Does God really say you're failing? He just doesn't want you to be that smart. He doesn't really have your, your good interests in mind. We should probably be a little afraid of what God might do. I feel like the seed that was planted only was all too hard of us. When you're united with the other hand of the dream that is living within you, mistrust will be gone from you. That invites us into failure. Now, the good news. The good news is that there is a cure and that God has provided healing and redemption power for our dreams. When I was in middle school and high school, I remember being in health class, and the health teacher would say things like, don't do drugs and alcohol because you will kill the brain cells in your brain and you'll never get them back. That wasn't true. I think we kind of instinctively knew it wasn't true because it didn't even work to keep us from doing that. But the fact is, the brain is rejuvenating itself. We do grow new brain cells. Uh, there's this term that they use in, in science called neuroplasticity. And what that basically means is that the brain, the, the, the neurons, the synapses, the, the damage done by trauma, the damage done by fear, that can be healed. And so what they call neuroplasticity, I just call redemption. Um, I, I think it's the same thing. But the opposite of good, good news is that as we experience the love of God, that as we get rid of our lies about God, the mistrust, the fear, and as we get the good news truly of who God is and that He indeed is love, begins to turn on us. In this book, Large Great Brain, Dr. Jennings offers a couple suggestions when he works with patients who are struggling with their concept of God. And, and he, he had several things, but one of the things that stands out to me is he has people meditate on a God of love for 15 minutes a day. It could be a passage of scripture, it could just be some aspect of themselves that they, that they, they are um, asked to think about constantly, a picture in their mind, words, an experience where they knew God loved them. He has them do that for about 15 minutes a day, and he has amazing results as he has them meditate and worship a God of love, not one that dissipates fear. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the actual nuts and bolts of how, how powerful our beliefs are and how powerful love is. And I'm going to use another example from my life, and it takes you back to 1992. Sorry for some of you, that's scary. The 90s might have been a bad decade for you. Um, but 1992 was an interesting year for our family. My husband and I had just graduated from college. We had two small boys. Um, my husband's degree was in youth ministry. He'd never been a youth pastor, but his degree was in youth ministry. And uh, my degree was in psychology. And we had had all this next. We had both these degrees. We're excited. We're young, more ambitious. What do you have for us next? And we looked in the paper and saw an ad. That's back when you went to the newspaper to find ads for jobs. And um, so we went to the paper. We saw this ad um, advertising the need for family teachers to live in with nine boys in Chicago. There was a home in the Chicago area, and they needed um, a couple to come in. And these boys were ages 8 to 18, and, and they um, were wards of the state of Illinois. They had been removed from the home because of abuse or neglect, or severe behavioral problems, and they had lost out all of their foster care possibilities. So a home like ours would be the last stop to have what would be considered kind of a normal way to live life. It was a group home type setting, but we tried to make it as family-like as possible. Well, when my husband and I saw that ad, we knew, we knew that's what God was asking us to do. 
we were so excited. We were like, oh my gosh, they're going to come. They're just going to come. They're going to love these kids, and they're going to love us. Because we're young, we're cool. Um, you know, this is, this is, this is going to be wonderful. And I had a pastor's wife at that time. She was a special wife for me. She said, um, Tara, think of what you're going to do for you to raise a young child. All the ways that your mom and dad's always going to do this. Okay, I'll do that. That is sweet. And so I, I, I journal a lot and did my planning. Here's my mom and dad's always going to do this. Little did I know, the only time I would have to go back to that room and remind myself why we were there. Because it was heavy. It only took about eight hours before I realized that the boys in this home had very definite beliefs as adults, especially parental figures. Especially parental figures. Some of their beliefs went like this. Adults can't be trusted. Adults are selfish. Adults are dangerous and unpredictable. They're abusive, disinterested, or fixed. You talk about the fear trap of being followed up and ignored. That's, that's the trap that these boys were in. And it was understandable because that had been their experience. It had been much of their experience. Our beliefs are formed largely based on how we perceive our life experiences. And as I mentioned earlier, on top of that, we've inherited this brain that doesn't want to fear and doesn't want, or that wants to fear and wants to have mistrust about everyone around us, including God. And so if we are born into families where we are fortunate enough that our families nurture us and provide human opportunities for us, that remaining with our mom, that begins to if we are not born into families that nurture us, then that fear and mistrust just gets reinforced and reinforced. And so we decide very early on that the world is safe or unsafe. If people can be trusted or not trusted. If I am capable, if I'm incapable. If I'm worthy of love or not worthy of love. If God is good, if God is mean. We develop that belief system really quickly. And interestingly, once that belief system is in place, we latch onto, cling onto, acknowledge those experiences in life that reinforce it. And if those beliefs are based on truth, but actually sets us free, and that truth, our, our beliefs based upon truth, lead to interactions with ourselves, with others, with God, that are pretty healthy. They're pretty healthy, not perfect, but pretty healthy. Even if that truth is difficult. For example, it is true that not everyone can be trusted. Correct? That's a, that's a true belief. That's kind of a sad truth. You maybe remember the first time in your life where you became aware not everybody can be trusted. Or maybe you remember the time that your child had the experience that you can't trust everybody. But even though that's a difficult truth, knowing the truth still sets us free. It sets us free to be prepared, to be appropriately cautious ourselves safe, and still have a general sense of the world out there. So the truth sets us free, even if that truth is difficult. If our belief system is based on those things that are false or partial truths, the opposite is true. Our relationship with God and others and self becomes more hopeful. We experience a lack of peace. And in that experience, we go to one of our two extremes when we're living out of fear. We go to the extreme of, I'm going to self-protect and push you away, or I'm going to over-accommodate 
and prove as much as I can to you at supper. Church, please, I really believe that we all can be healed out of one of two options, and that's fear or love. Fear or love. And that's definitely what we saw when we entered the home of Chicago. Several of the boys in our home were self-protecting, pushing us a little, not interested, not wanting to give us a chance. Some of them even said they thought we were there for the money. I'd be kidding, yeah, I'll retire at 120. The other boys took a very different response. They would smile as much as possible. They did everything we asked them to do. And they tried everything they could to earn our love and our approval. And it occurred to me that we do the same kind of thing with God for each other. If we are living out of a place of fear, we often do the same kind of thing, even with other people, and even with ourselves. Fear leads to the truth only love will ever. I have so enjoyed um, being a part of Life Path, and one of the things that I love is their definition of recovery. And, you know, in Life Path, they say we're all recovering for something. <laughs> but we all turn to something. Um, when we are in that place of conflict, that lack of peace I just described, when we are experiencing the symptoms of a fearful heart, a fearful brain, we all turn to something. When we are not convinced that we are loved, when we are not experiencing all that fear that everything back here is falling out, we look for love and we look for something, anything, to fill up that void. In fact, I think one definition of sin is getting legitimate needs met with illegitimate ways, illegitimate ways that lead us to pain. Because the need to be loved is something that we've been created with. It's in our DNA. It's in our DNA. And when we're not experiencing it, we go to everything else around us. You know, that's tragic, but at the same time, it's an amazing opportunity. Because when things aren't working in our life, we get to say, God, is, is there a false belief? <laughs> you know, something's not working right. So, so, so God, search me, know me, show me. Is, is there something that I have, I have started to believe, even though I've been consciously about you, that's leading me to this place of anxiety? Depression or control or manipulation or hyper-religiosity or alcohol or sex or drugs, whatever it is, God, what is it? What, what has crept in? What is the false belief? One of the things that's hard about that process is that we have to question. And um, questioning, it sounds easy, right? Just, just question your beliefs. But you have all probably experienced happens when you want to ask a question but we're a little afraid to, maybe at work or at school, with friends, with family. What happens at work when you start to question how things are being done? Yeah, you might get labeled a troublemaker, maybe arrogant, trying to get somebody's job. Or at school, I can remember wanting to raise my hand. I did not know what the teacher was talking about. I didn't want to look stupid in front of other people. Or maybe at a family reunion, you just know that the family's not talking about something. Something's going on. You want to ask questions, but do you want to tell? Don't question. Don't think about what's going to possibly get you in a lot of money anymore. Or how about at church or even when you're reading the Bible and it's not going to make any sense, but I don't want to appear like I don't have any faith. I don't want to seem like a doubter. I don't want people to question my life with God, so I'll just not question. Now, in my experience, that just doesn't work very well. Because the questions don't really go away, do they? They, they kind of stay lying beneath the surface, festering, 
I find it, it frankly kind of discontenting. What's worse is we stay in these places of false beliefs. So my question doesn't work. But may I have a question, especially when it comes to church Vatican God? I think it's helpful to have a few guidelines. So I want to share a couple of things that I've used in my life because I've had to question some things about God. There were things that I would hear, I would read, and I was like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. I can't figure out how you can be loved and still say this. Or I can't understand how you can be loved, but you're still letting me experience this. I can't understand how you can be loved, but you're still letting them experience this. After I've got some questions. The first guideline that I want to share is ask questions with the assurance that it's okay with God. As I look through scripture, there are a lot of questions. I was looking in Psalms just yesterday, in, um, in Psalms 2, 4, 10, 13, 22. This, this is the first part of Psalms. Questions. Oh, what's the deal about this God? What's the deal? How, how, how do I, how do I function when, when it seems like the bad guys are always winning? God, why are you silent? God, why do things forsake me? God, are you ever going to answer? Are you ever going to come to my rescue? These are some of the questions in Scripture. So ask questions with the assurance. It's okay with God. It's okay. In fact, I, I think He kind of likes it. I don't know, but when I could ask any questions, He's a better parent than me. Ask questions with the goal, not of specific facts, but of actually knowing Him and knowing His heart. Sometimes I come to God and have really specific questions that I'm sure I have to get answered. Was Jesus coming before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation? I'm not saying that's not an important question, and I'm not saying not to ask it. But if that's the goal, if I say, I have to know specifically this very thing, I might be disappointed. He might not answer me that, that specifically. But what he does want me to do is lean into him. Stephanie, if you don't give me that answer right now, are you still going to trust me? Are you still going to lean into this relationship? I'd like you to. I'd like you to. So the goal of our questioning becomes a peace with God. Necessarily specific answers to questions. But when it comes to his character, the Bible says, I, I love Isaiah 55, seek me while I may be found. God wants to be found. His character, who he is, the fact that he is love, that's his desire to show us that. And we do that when we make even our questioning goals that of finding out who he is and being deeper in relationship with him. Ask questions with humility. He might just be more than us. That's, that's kind of a no-brainer, but sometimes we forget that perhaps we can't handle the truth right now. There are things that God has done at this season in my life that I could not have handled five years ago. I think often God says, you know what, I'm going to reveal truth to you. I will, but some other things need to be put in place first. So we ask questions with humility, knowing that he might have a bigger picture in mind and that we can't grasp onto that answer right now. And finally, ask questions with another solid seeker. I have a friend who is, is dear to me. She and I meet once a month, and we ask really hard questions that we're afraid to ask anywhere else. <laughs> and we ask questions about God. We ask questions about the Christian life. We share our struggles. And I trust her because I know she's solid. I know she's in a close relationship with the Lord. And I know she'll keep me in guidance. And so we meet regularly. And that rhythm, that time of asking God has, has changed the way I view him. It's changed the way I view him. 
because I didn't want to embarrass the questions. I'm not there yet. I want to be in a different place where I really have more feelings of God's love and I'm experiencing God's love on a more regular basis, but I'm not where I was 10 years ago either. So I'm making progress. I'll tell you the rest of the story of my, my time in Chicago. I'm, it, it, was, it was a long, hard process, but eventually the voice began to question and began to test. And began to consider that maybe we were there because we cared about them. Maybe we were there because of love and that there wasn't some ulterior motive or a power trip or whatever whatever it was that they, they had told themselves. Maybe we were there because we cared. My husband and I did not respond perfectly all the time. That is for sure. But we were consistent enough that eventually most of the boys in our home began to understand and began to believe our care for them. But that truth alone did not change things. Truth has to be applied. Truth has to be applied. Just knowing the truth doesn't necessarily change anything. It has to be applied. And for them, this is what that looked like. They began to allow themselves to be vulnerable and not always self-reflect. They allowed themselves to practice honesty, authenticity with us. Um, they allowed themselves to not always be trying to earn our approval and our love, and they could just be a real teenage boys. And over time, over time, our home became much more family-like. It wasn't perfect, and some of the boys still really struggled. They were mine. But I will tell you, it was a different home. It was a different home. One of the things that they had to do as well was to reframe when we were setting boundaries or giving rules, instead of them immediately thinking they want to control us, they didn't, they didn't like us, they're being mean, they had to reframe that to, okay, they have our best, they have our best in mind. They want us to be safe. They want, they want us to be protected. It's not that different than what we do. When we apply the truth, when we apply the truth that God is love, it requires authenticity and transparency and vulnerability in us with God with other people, even with ourselves. And I do believe, too, that it requires, as we're applying the truth, that we are reframing. We are giving ourselves some other options. Maybe these are things are happening not because they're bad or because they're mean or God wants to punish me. Maybe it's because of love. Because as I have done this, I have gone and looked from Genesis to Revelation, and I think, okay, God is love. God is the truth. God, help me reframe some of the things that don't make sense. Help me reframe some of the things that don't make sense. And as I've done that, I am seeing more and more that God's actions, His heart, His words are all about drawing us back to Him. Drawing us back to Him. He pursues us with that amazing, radical love God is. And if we begin to get a glimpse of this, it will change things. Because I know I can make changes in my life based on I ought to do this, I should do this, or God really feels about this. Okay, I'll, 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 God will say about this. That works for a while, but long-lasting, radical change in my life only happens when I get a glimpse of God and His heart for me, His love for me. I talked a lot this morning about our peace, changing our beliefs, but I want to also emphasize that this is not about us making something happen. He is God's best toward us. And we can't do anything unless the Spirit reveals it. So this is still the running of the watershed of this process. And I'm not exactly sure where that line is all the time. What, what part of this is mine? What part of this is God's? When, when do I wait? 
when did I step into that? I'm not exactly sure. It, it became more clear to me, and sometimes it changes based on what I'm going through, but this is what I know. The same God who asks us to seek Him because He wants to be found, that's the same God that comes out and finds us. The same God that wants to be found by us is the same God that comes and finds us. Both are true, and both are right. I wouldn't trade the time that I spent in Chicago for anything. I am certain that those boys taught me far more than I ever taught them. If I want to end with just um, a few words about love, love is stronger than fear. Love can heal a fearful brain, and perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Thanks for letting me be with you this morning.